I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... And it's mostly blocks, and it's uh, kids get on it, and they follow the blocks, and it's a whole set of games, which has uh, an almost 98% cure after uh, six weeks of treatment for dyslexia. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. It's What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. Today, we're talking with John Arundel. If you've been following the media marketplace in Washington, D.C. since, oh, well, let's say 1951, then an Arundel person has changed your experience. John Arundel's father started the first all-news radio station here, WAVA. He sued WTOP and lost, so now we have WTOP and 499 other all-news radio stations around America. The story goes on from there. He spent 11 years at Washington Life, a magazine many of you may have seen chronicling the social life of Washington, D.C., and now is a PR consultant for all sorts of companies, including the Dyslexia Association and Davos. Yes, that one in Switzerland. It's an amazing arc of a career, and his comments and observations on Davos, you won't want to miss. Here's our conversation. Okay, John, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Walk. So your DNA, literally from your dad and everything, you have been uh, fully engaged in the Washington media market like few people. Walk our listeners through kind of what happened with your dad in radio, and let's take it from there. Yeah, you know, I, I basically uh, uh, grew up uh, uh, drinking the um, the media Kool Aid. There you uh, go. Ever since I was a, a little kid, my my dad owned a bunch of chain of newspapers uh, in in uh, Northern Virginia, Fairfax Times, Loudoun Times, Mirror, Falkir Times, Democrat, where I got my start as a columnist and writer at the age of uh, thirteen, and it was a wonderful business to be in for almost fifty years. Uh, we we ran you know thirty percent uh, profits for most of those years, and then two thousand eight came along and. Then, uh, you know, newspapers started going away towards uh, more of a digital-focused um, uh, economy. Tough transition. And tough transition, and we ended up uh, selling most of our newspapers to the Washington Post company. Jeff yep. Bezos, of course, bought the Washington Post and then uh, said, what are these things, and sold them back to the uh, community leaders for a dollar about a year later. Okay. Uh, Warren Buffett bought the Loudoun Times-Mirror, um, our flagship newspaper in Loudoun County, of course, the nation's um, – uh, most wealthiest wealthiest county in the United States, and and uh, we we couldn't make a run of that. But uh, Warren Buffett tried, and uh, after two years, he he gave up and and sold that as well. But what a wonderful uh, you know career to to have uh, started in a newspaper family. And my my dad, of course, uh, created all news broadcasting in the United States with uh, WAVA in 1962. Wow, a um, hillbilly uh, bankrupt. Uh, country music station dead last in the in the ratings and he had nowhere to go but up and so he just decided why don't we try all news all the time what a novel concept it was going to say a shocking idea back then half of the djs walked out said he was crazy and he was going to lose even more money and we were number one in the dc market within a year held that till 1969 when a station called wtop where we're now standing came along and uh now there are about 550 uh, all-news radio stations in the United States. Of course, we have CNN and Fox News and CNBC and Bloomberg, and everyone else has copied that model that my dad brought to the United States from Mexico City, actually, was was actually the first one in the world, and, and but the first one in the United States was WAVA in, 
and it was really exciting to to grow up in a in a broadcasting newspaper family. Muy bien, as they would say in Mexico City. But uh, it's it's incredible the the Arundel footprint on to your point where we stand today in the the, the building that houses both WTP and WFED, which is effectively an all news station specifically for the for the federal marketplace. So let's talk about uh, small newspapers because you touched on it. It, I was on the board of a of a, a company called uh, TheStreet.com, Jim Cramer's you know financial news, and the CEO used to famously say we went from print dollars to digital dimes to mobile pennies, which is the economics. What were some of the things that you thought that you found or your colleagues found most surprising about how quickly small newspapers, as a physical thing, just disappeared from the public appetite? You pro- you saw it a front row seat. Well, we thought we were bulletproof. You know, yeah. you, you you've got the giant sucking sound of the Washington Post basically being the, the arguably you know the best, if if not the second best, metropolitan daily newspaper in the United States. So we never attempted to challenge that um, dominance of the Post. Um, my dad thought I was nuts when I founded the Alexandria Times in uh, the second largest city in the Washington D.C. area, but I had carefully studied that market and had realized that uh, Alexandria actually is number one in the United States for book consumption. And it uh, arguably had a um, not a great newspaper. And we challenged them with something fresh and upmarket. And everyone said I was I was nuts for, for opening a newspaper in 2005. We did a million dollars in revenue in our first year. And the needle uh, was straight up. I sold the newspaper to get into the magazine business um, with uh, Washington uh, Life in 2009, where I spent the last 11 years of my career. And we did feel that 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 compression uh, of the digital dollars, and on the local market, um, you know what we saw was um, in Fairfax County. Let, let's take that as a as a as an example. Okay, um, that's you know grown into a sprawling metropolis now of about 1.5 million people. When my Amazing. parents uh, followed Bobby and Ethel Kennedy out there to 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 uh, start a family back in 1957. It was all dirt roads, and now it's uh, you've got a megalopolis called Tyson's Corner, and some of the largest corporations in America, including Hilton, et cetera, are, are, are based out there, uh, Northrop Grumman, uh, et cetera. And um, what we found in Fairfax County, where we finally had to sort of uh, call uncle, was, was that Fairfax County had really become a melting pot. The schools, mm-hmm. for instance, have about uh, 65 different languages that classes are taught in. And most of the, the people that own businesses in, in, in Fairfax County were not from there. They were driving in from, from Stafford, from Prince George's County, right. et cetera. And they, they had less sort of invested in the community than sort of the old guard that had moved there, the Till Hazels of the world and, and, and the, the, the great uh, real estate barons who had, um, had, had built um, Fairfax County into a, a big community um, and so they were less sort of invested in, in, in their communities. And so that's pretty tough um, to sell ads into. On the, on the rural um, markets, uh, uh, for instance, Fauquier County and such, we um, were doing much, much better um, because the newspaper was king. Yep. But what we found eventually was that um, uh, some upstart uh, dot-coms came in with a, um, a model of uh, – uh, hiring a bunch of reporters, local, fresh, young reporters, and sort of flooding the zone with as much information as possible on what's going on in the on the town council and the sanitation board, et cetera. 
and putting that in your email box every morning in a faster delivery model than the than the weekly newspaper could could sort of um, keep up with. And so we you know we went from thirty percent EBITDA to to losses, and and uh, we we turned that over to Jeff Bezos and and Warren Buffett to figure it out. And obviously they didn't figure it out either because they both got out of that that uh, well it, 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 it might maybe it, it's impossible to figure out which is sort of I think one of the one of the one of the themes here and we're talking once again with John Arundel he is literally I think when we say what's working in Washington you've been working in Washington for and, most of and my the, career and and the brand and the brands you've been involved with so let's talk about Washington life because you mentioned that you joined that you were there 11 years I guess joining in 09 2010 yes That's, yeah so Washington life is I think a tremendously interesting business model yeah. covering life, but really in many ways social life, but also the interaction between all the powers that be here, the government and, and technology and, um, and, and, and other privately held companies, not-for-profits, all that. What, what was your, when you first got there, what did you see the revenue stream being and how did you try to grow it, expand it? What were some revenue challenges that you and your colleagues saw just trying to spell, sell space in it or the digital side? Walk us through that, that experience. That is a great question, Mark, because when the owners hired me, they told me that they liked my sort of micro journalism niche media approach in basically finding revenue streams where revenue streams had not existed uh, before. Fresh. And yeah. no one no one had sort of really figured out how to sell advertising until all of a sudden, you know, by my second or third year, you know, I was selling between half a million to Eight hundred thousand dollars a year in in print advertising, which you know doesn't sound like a whole lot of money, but nope. for a small magazine, yeah, um, with a with a staff of of, of four and 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 a magazine that's read by everyone from uh, you know the president of the United States to the Speaker of the House to the, all the ambassadors, it was sort of their their bible yep. for what was going on in Washington from the uh, society power you know philanthropy uh, standpoint, and so. We reached in and, and basically dove into that market a lot deeper and, and basically found revenue streams from places that hadn't existed before. Embassies suddenly were buying ads to support us and mm-hmm. events were that needed and craved the kind of publicity that, that they um, really need in order to uh, raise money uh, suddenly were, were, were supporting us. I think I had probably the hardest job in Washington for 11 years, which was asking philanthropies for money. What case did you have to make for some of those challenging customers about readership, viewership, and outcomes? Because, you know, my wife was in ad sales for the New York Times for 20 years, and she had she had outcomes. Here's the number of readers I have. If you're in the front, if you're on the, the back page, the editorial section, there were some outcomes to, to play to for a smaller publication with a, with a niche, um, in a good way, with a niche prospect. How did you make the case to advertisers? Well, you know, we knew that we couldn't make it from the standpoint of the 150,000 people that were uh, online with us, you know, given that the WashingtonPost.com is somewhere north of 65 million uh, monthly unique users, Politico somewhere north of 11 million uh, monthly unique users. And those are really tough numbers. Those are scale that you really can't uh, compete with. And so quality, not quantity, though. Right? Yeah. And so so the way that we we sort of did it and the way that I sort of fashioned my ad pitch, if you will, was that if you keep our printing presses uh, uh, running, then we'll ensure that your philanthropic organizations, you know, stays in our pages. Now, that was a tough call because mm-hmm. there were some 
that couldn't keep their lights on. And I was always appealing to the owners of the magazine that we, we should we should cover them anyway. Yep. And there were others that didn't want to buy ads, but 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 uh, you know people like Nancy Pelosi were showing up at their galas and. We we thought that uh, we would we would cover them anyway. So it wasn't a, a lock, stock, and barrel, pay to play kind of situation because I know people have criticized that model. Um, it wasn't that way at all. It w- it was a um, it was a process in in which we um, reached out to our friends. And if you want to support us, if you want to keep us going, um, this is the way that um, that we can support you if you support us. Yeah. But t- tell us about what you did after you left Washington Life. What you created and what 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 is who it's serving? Well, uh, you know, 2020 was a was a tough year for everyone. So, so I've heard. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, uh, me included. And uh, you know, working at an events magazine, suddenly there are no events in Washington, and uh, there was no advertising, and so um, it was it was time for me to pivot and find something new uh, to do. I'd been, as I said, uh, been to probably 2,000 events over 11 years, and I'd been to about 30 different countries with ambassadors showcasing their uh, countries with articles that I'd written about uh, uh, their wonderful countries and and uh, had been to interview uh, everyone from Clint Eastwood to um, Tom Hanks, who nicknamed me the iPhone guy, to Donald Trump uh, turning to me one day and, and asking if I would uh, uh, do the first interview of, of him when he came to Washington to make his first purchase, which was, of course, Lowe's Island out in uh, out in Loudoun County. And, uh, you know, what an incredible network that I had um, had assembled and what do I do with that? And I was uh, up in the Hamptons one time uh, right after uh, I and some of the staff had been laid off and uh, wondering um, what I want to do with the rest of my life. And this short guy comes in and he announces to the table that he wants to buy Greenland. And everyone at the table laughed at him. I was the only one at the table who didn't laugh at him and said, wow, I, I happen to know the uh, Danish foreign minister who used to be the Danish ambassador here. Would you like an appointment with them? And the guy's name was Brock Pierce, of course, one of the world's largest holders of, of Bitcoin and uh, chair of the Bitcoin um, uh, Foundation here in Washington. And uh, he took me seriously and uh, brought me on board. And I've had a wonderful three-year relationship uh, with Brock. And he was he was really my first my first client, got me got me started in doing, you know, what I do now, which is, you know, connecting people with with opportunities, with um, whether it be getting them on to uh, CNBC or CNN or Bloomberg or into the Wall Street Journal, um, or um, I now represent uh, three humanitarian organizations from Ukraine, and that is really my soft spot. It is the greatest uh, crisis we have seen since World War II. Agreed. And one day when my children say, Daddy, what did you do uh, during the greatest humanitarian crisis since the Great War, World War II. What did you do? And I can say, well, I did a lot. And mm-hmm. so right now I'm working with uh, different organizations, uh, helping them um, raise their, their profile, their visibility, and raising funds for to buy, purchase uh, ambulances because Putin has, uh, has uh, blown up 68 of the 72 ambulances we put on the front lines with uh, Ukraine friends and Ukraine mm-hmm. Focus. I uh, just did a, an event with Global Community Corps, a group out of Boston, which is working um, on something which is really hard for people to talk about, which is the PTSD, which is being suffered by the Ukrainian soldiers and the really taboo subject of the Ukrainian women who have been raped by um, uh, Russian soldiers. And yep. we, we brought that subject 
to Washington at uh, the Pierce School penthouse, uh, six blocks from Capitol Hill. We had a United States senator who led the discussion, a uh, very important discussion, working uh, with those organizations and with a dyslexia organization, which uh, 1.6 billion people have uh, dyslexia in this world, and uh, they've got a solution for it. We just did a forum with Mayor Adams in New York City at Columbia University. So really a diverse group of clients that are all have the same uh, sort of DNA and that they, they want change and, and they want um, good in the world. What a list. That's John Arundel, ladies and, ladies and gentlemen. John is our guest here on What's Working in Washington. When we return, we're going to talk about a specific place uh, that he has been helping his clients at. And I think it'll be interesting to understand more and more what it's like in a town called Davos. We want to put out a huge thank you to our listeners who put us in touch with some of the best voices in Washington, D.C. and the region. We've been hearing from you through Twitter, LinkedIn, and other direct messaging. On What's Working in Washington, we talk to power players about innovation in the federal government and how businesses in the region are keeping us competitive. We talk to the brains in the nonprofit world, restaurant domain, and next-gen tech. We love meeting smart people. If you know someone we should be talking to on our show, let us know. Tracy Madigan, our producer, and I think that it's all about shining a spotlight on people who are really getting things done in the region. And thanks to all of those who stay in touch with us. We're here with our guest, John Arundel. John, I think it's fair to say, is about as close to the entire media and PR universe in Washington, D.C. over his career as anybody we're going to meet here in the show. But specifically, John, uh, after a, a long career in both media properties, print properties, but also at Washington Life magazine, which many of you probably read or see as, a, as an arbiter of social events here in Washington, D.C., has a PR firm now that he runs with a wide variety of clients. Before we get to Davos, where he just returned from and, and what that experience is like and what our listeners can learn Let's talk about dyslexia. You mentioned dyslexia Neuroline and what they're doing about dys- dyslexia. 1.7, I guess you had some big numbers that you mentioned, people that suffer from it. I, some of my relatives um, are dyslexic. Tell us what Neuroline is doing and what what what's what their future holds. Yeah, about uh, six months ago, I met a woman named uh, uh, Indrani Palchadori, um, whose claim to fame was she had grown up uh, in um, Calcutta, India, and had uh, been mentored as a child by... Uh, none other than Mother Teresa, because her parents worked for her. And she came to the U.S. at 19 on a scholarship to Princeton. It was discovered by David Bowie. And then um, uh, Rihanna, Lady Gaga, and others, and was a world-famous photographer um, and, and pumped all of her money that she was making in photography and music videos and such into her philanthropic causes, including a, a school for girls in Calcutta um, and also um, dyslexia which is her, her great cause, and I, I joined with her and another guy named G.K. Reed, who, who you may know who is, was sort of the, the videographer behind Rihanna. And we um, uh, work with an um, Ottawa, Canada-based uh, startup uh, named Neuraline, which um, has a um, software, and it's mostly blocks. And it's, uh, mm-hmm. kids get on it, and they follow the blocks, and it's a whole set of games 
which has a, an almost 98% cure after uh, six weeks of treatment for uh, things like uh, dyslexia, ADHD, uh, the neurodiversity uh, issues. And we were so happy to find so many other believers, um, since there are 1.6 billion people in the world with, with um, neurodiversity issues. We were able to find people uh, like um, uh, Mayor Eric Adams of New York City, um, who is leading probably the most uh, um, uh, aggressive effort um, to um, identify uh, uh, neurodiversity, ADHD, dyslexia in school children. And we held a forum with him in December at Columbia University to discuss how um, cities like New York can follow that model and and be um, more aggressive about identifying um, not only school children, um, but prisoners. I mean, people don't realize that almost 70% of our prison uh, population is functionally illiterate. Right. Well, when you have a functionally illiterate prison population, they're going to get out of prison and they're not going to be able to find jobs because they can't read. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so we're looking at very interesting sort of initiatives to sort of help the prison population, to help uh, school children um, with their I'm I'm a neurodiverse person. I'm I'm dyslexic, as is my as my son. It's it's not such a bad thing. It it is it is not the kind of it's not the burden scarlet. it used to be for sure. Yeah, yeah because people in business actually now are saying that that if you if you have neurodiversity, you actually think differently, and you end yep. up becoming someone like Steven Spielberg, who is incredibly uh, successful. Elon Musk, et cetera. There's a whole list of of uh, of uh, very successful people. Some of the most successful people in the world who are neurodiverse. And I say neurodiverse because it's not just about dyslexia. It's about ADHD and a right. whole host of neurodiversity issues. Well, you talk about the mayor of New York. Famously, the governor of New York, Nelson Rockefeller, uh, was incredibly dyslexic, really was just unable to read. Somehow got through Dartmouth and became governor of New York and vice president of the United States. Lou Preston, who was ran the World Bank and was CEO of, of uh, Morgan Stanley. Um, uh, to your point, the, the list goes on and on of people that were creative and had the challenge of literally processing words and overcame it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I think many of our listeners will be fascinated to learn more about Neuroline, but also just the, 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 the entire arena uh, of all those people that have challenges in, in processing data or focus through ADHD and stuff like well, that. Well, you know, from, from that, I, I gained a, a new client, uh, Lionel Manigo, who was uh, spent six years at Rikers and was uh, neurodiverse and didn't see many options there, but he got to reading a lot of the business publications, and now he runs a $1.6 million uh, firm on Park Avenue in New York and is a rapper with a large, large following. And it just goes to show that you know you can over, overcome uh, neurodiversity issues. You, you can be successful, uh, and you can think differently with this. So you just returned from Davos, Switzerland, uh, in the legendary annual conference there, which gets more attention, negative and positive, I would argue, than any city in the world for the time it is it is lit up by all the attendees. I'm going to ask a sort of a goofy fan question. What's the vibe there like? What What is it physically like? I've never been. I've had a couple of old classmates that have been from a business perspective. But what is it like to be in Davos during the during the conference? Well, I can tell you it's it's not a circus. It is a lot of big ideas. It's a lot of important people talking about important things. There were 
55 world leaders, 1,340 uh, billionaires were at Davos this year. Uh, more CEOs than you could um, shake a stick at. You know, I had a great conversation one night with uh, Satya Nadella, the, the CEO of, uh, of Microsoft, um, about um, AI. And, um, you know, and there was a great presence there uh, of Washington, you know, if you walk up and down the promenade, that's one of the things that struck me is you, you had Axios House, you had Politico House, you had Semaphores. My friend Steve Clements yep. uh, did an amazing job with, with that. And, um, and then, um, you know, one of the things a lot of people don't know is, is the programming of the speakers at uh, Davos actually happens here in D.C. Um, uh, Price Waterhouse actually uh, puts together the, the speaker you know, the Washington Davos connection is is really um, exceptional. Have U.S. presidents been? I I don't know who attends from our federal government. Is it a lot of people, or does it vary from year to year? What's your sense? Well, I can tell you that Joe Biden was not at Davos this year. Okay, um, but Joe Manchin was, <laughs> and uh, Joe Manchin was uh, basically at the opening of a door. Uh, you could not uh, go to anything in Davos without seeing uh, Joe Manchin and his sidekick, Christian Cinema. And finally, I asked somebody, why is Joe Manchin just about everywhere? And somebody said, oh, you haven't heard? He's running for president. There you go. So, so it's all about PR. Yeah. Well, I, I, first of all, thanks for that perspective. Maybe someday um, I, will, I will beg to be invited or maybe I'll just go and show up and, and hang out with you. But we're here with John Arundel. John Arundel clearly is a media maven in the Washington, D.C. market. And, John, we ask all of our guests at the end of the show, if they rule the world, uh, what would they start happening that is currently not happening? Or what would they stop happening that they don't like happening in the world or both? And uh, the war in Ukraine. No, no, no doubt about that. It, you know, every century we have our Hitler. And this century we have uh, Vladimir Putin. And uh, this cannot go on any longer. Uh, it is it is tearing the world apart, and it just unhinges the mind that we have a Western uh, democracy uh, being dismantled in the way that uh, Ukraine is. And, you know, for the future of our world, for the future of our children, this just cannot go on um, any, any longer. And uh, I just beg and pray that it ends soon. A fascinating answer. What is your personal opinion of the prospects of your wish coming true? Well, that really uh, depends on you know. I was I was in the Persian Gulf yep. in, in in 1991 during the uh, the Gulf War, and and I saw that uh, certain weaponry such as the Patriot missile was brought in, yep. which uh, pretty much ended the war. And, yeah. I, and I see that President Biden has very smartly uh, approved the Patriot missile coming in um, and being used. Um, that's a fearsome we weapon. Yep. That, that's going to be really, really tough. A long-range missile system like that would be really hard for Putin and his army to defeat. I, I echo your sentiment. I just hope it doesn't escalate. Uh, I think none of us do, but I echo your sentiment and, in fact, applaud the fact you bring that up here on What's Working in Washington. John Arundel, it's been great to talk with you. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. The team behind What's Working in Washington is a great group. The executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Online content, Anna DeGraff. And that theme music you enjoy, performed by the Sunbathers. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.